Dispatches, Inside the Taliban's Air Force and the incredible story behind the role U.S. Federal Marshals and Robert De Niro played in catching one of Italy's most wanted men. Months on, and the military side of Kabul's Hamid Karzai International Airport, Hkaya, remains a strangely silent place, littered with remnants left behind in the aftermath of the frantic U.S. exodus after almost two decades of war. MREs in heaping piles of trash, blistered U.S. warplanes, and a few lonely Taliban members on the security lookout. But behind the large warehouses, mechanics are working on getting some of the U.S. decimated aircraft back up and running. As we saw, there are several Russian MH-17s and a U.S. Black Hawk helicopter that appear to be operational. We've repaired more than 50 helicopters. We have many types, and when we saw them flying overhead during the war, we called them in our own names, says Abdul Hadi Hamdan, 35, Director General of Kabul International Airport, which they no longer refer to as Hamid Karzai. Hamdan, who joined the Taliban in 2005, came to his esteemed position because it was proven that he was a trusted person who had served the country and did not cheat the elders, he claims, also adding that all issues with the aircraft have been resolved. When the Americans left, they did a lot of destruction in the military part, so it was a challenge for us, but the Emirate has its own engineers and technicians, he continues. We also had engineers from the previous government, so they, they have been doing the work. However, in the weeks and months before the Department of Defense, DOD, destroyed millions worth of U.S.-issued equipment given to Afghan security forces on its way out, the Taliban, as it stormed through and took control of strategic air bases from Herat and Mazar Sharif to Kandahar and Kunduz, and seized top-notch American equipment. All that has amounted to an impressive arsenal of goods that the new regime officially termed the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, is feverishly perpeting to keep functioning. Furthermore, Hamden says that they are working to return dozens of aircraft flown to neighbouring nations amid the tumultuous August takeover. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is working on re-establishing all the security organisations which are needed for security. The Air Force is a priority for the country stresses Naeem ul-Haqqani, the 37-year-old Director of Information and Culture in Herat. We are looking at different options to discuss and negotiate and working towards having an Air Force. Throughout the 20-year occupation, the Afghan Air Force was touted as one of the few success stories and the one battlefield unit that the Taliban did not possess throughout its insurgency years. Nonetheless, within days of the American departure, the Emirate deployed a cadre of engineers, technicians, and experts to revive at least some of what was left behind. On a visit to the Ministry of Defense, MOD, in the early weeks of the Taliban's governance, scores of former government employees were lined up beside the deliberated gardens in a bid to get their old jobs back as unemployment soared and the economy crumbled. The aircraft that needed small repairs have been fixed, and those with major issues are being worked on, quips Anayatollah Kawas Mami, the 27-year-old spokesperson for the Ministry of Defence, run by Mullah Muhammad Yaqub, 
the 30-year-old son of Taliban founder Mullah Mohammed Omar. Previous government experts are back. Taliban spokesperson Bilal Karimi also affirmed that the government immediately set about building an air force after announcing a general amnesty for all former employees, calling on them to return to their positions and help the country. Those experts, of course, were trained by the best of the best US forces. However, Kawaswami did not seem to know the difference between a Chinook or a Black Hawk, asserting that preferred aircraft was a decision of the Emirates' political leadership rather than the MOD. But just days earlier, the Kabul skies were filled with the rare sounds of choppers flying overhead amid an ISIS-K attack on the Sada Dawood Khan military hospital. The Taliban managed to use one US Black Hawk and two Russian Mi-17s to dispatch, dispatch a cadre of its special forces onto the roof as the standoff continued. One chief Kabul-based Taliban intelligence official who spoke on the condition of anonymity, explained that, for now, their air force, which he referred to as obligatory for any country, will be used in urgent situations and based on need. Previously, government leaders were flown from place to place, but under the Emirates banner, their leadership benches are via road. Whereas the Afghan forces, bolstered by NATO, were reliant upon the foreign footprint for advising and assisting Kawas Mami makes a point of insisting that the Taliban's version of an air force will be fully independent. That may be easier said than done. So what does the Taliban have in their arsenal? In early November, the Taliban held an impromptu Sunday afternoon military parade in the capital, fashioned by roughly 250 soldiers brandishing American M117 armored vehicles and M4 rifles, in a bid to show its current evolution from insurgent into a fully functioning armed forces. But policing overhead was a flock of M117 helicopters. In addition, images have circulated of foot soldiers posing beside an A-29 attack plane and an MD-530 utility helicopter in the northern city of Mazar-i-Sharif, which fell to the Taliban's hands the day before Kabul. Well, no one can say for sure who and what their role inside Afghanistan is. The Russian embassy is one of the few that remains open. Its group of apparent personnel and or contractors on the ground are occasionally seen frequenting the military clothing and supply shops, selling whatever was left behind. There are still security people coming in, says one tactical store worker who requested his name not be used. The Russians are still here. At the fall, it was estimated that the Taliban possessed at least 38 airplanes, a dozen helicopters, and some unmanned aerial vehicles still in running condition. However, one senior Taliban commander later told me that even though they do have the expertise to develop a drone program, they lacked sufficient equipment. You can click more to read more about their arsenal and what is left uh, in the link in the newsletter. And the role the U.S. Federal Marshals and Robert De Niro played in catching one of Italy's most wanted men. The attack remains one of the most devastating on European soil and is etched in the collective memory of all Italians. As locals and tourists sought to escape the sweltering heat inside the Bologna Central Railway Station on the morning of August 2, 1980, a suitcase bomb exploded inside the overcrowded waiting room. 
It obliterated almost the entire building and a waiting train in a matter of seconds. A total of 85 people were killed, more than 200 severely injured, and thousands were trapped in the burning rubble for several hours as passers-by attempted to offer aid amid the apocalyptic scene. Members of the Italian neo-fascist group known as the Nuclei Armati Revolutionari NIR, Armed Revolutionary Nuclear, were later sentenced for the attack, although they denied any involvement. In the immediate aftermath, many of the top tier members fled. Stefano Procopio was one of the first to abscond, using a fake passport, and arrive in Lebanon to train emerging Christian militia groups. He ended up on Interpol's red notice as one of Europe's most wanted men for some 13 years, until US federal authorities stepped in, with some inadvertent help from Hollywood A-lister Robert De Niro. An international red notice was issued through Interpol some years before, and the US attorney requested of the Eastern District of New York that we up the case, recalled Craig Kane, the then New York-based inspector for the US federal marshals, who partnered with Lenny DePaul. I was given carte blanche by the late Supervery Deputy US Marshal Michael Lander to pick a team and run with it. USMS investigators tracked the mother's phone in Italy using a reverse tap and trace. Following information from the trace, investigators located two addresses, one in the Bronx and one in Manhattan, right across the street from Robert De Niro's still-standing restaurant, the Tribeca Grill. If he was indeed here, we didn't know if he was planning another terrorist attack, so we pulled out all the resources we had available, King continued. We received information that the mother had called both the Bronx and Manhattan phone numbers, and through investigative work, we were able to ascertain that the phones were subscribed to a female. Pre-9-11 days of information sharing between countries, at the speed of the internet, did not exist, and their intelligence gathering relied heavily on tracking coin phones and trying to track prepaid cards and odd movements. Investigators learned that the woman used an apartment in the Bronx, New York, and had a Jeep with New Jersey tagged. Around 30 investigators were assembled, including marshals, NYPD, DEA, and customs to start surveillance on both locations. Also on standby were the NYPD bomb squad and emergency service unit. To complicate the situation, President Clinton was due to arrive in New York, just a stone's throw from where we believed Procopio was staying in Manhattan, Kane said. We contacted the Secret Service to advise them of our plan of action. The SS took this very seriously and supplied a counter-assault team. Since we had no idea what might happen, SS agents deployed snipers on various rooftops and stationed extra agents in sensitive positions in and around the area. However, the most critical view of the target was De Niro's apartment, De Niro's restaurant, with his fame from his silver screen roles seamlessly woven into the arrest plan. We convinced restaurant management to supply a few waiters uniforms and had personnel having lunch in the outdoor area. Kane explained. Kane and DePaul had teams watching the Bronx apartment and they had been told that the woman had gotten into the Jeep with several boxes that contained unknown contents and was heading towards Manhattan on the West Side Highway. We knew Procopio was a trained killer. It was as simple as that. The groups around then didn't care how many people they killed. They didn't want to blow up just one or two. They loved to send the message of power, DePaul said. He knew his day was coming, 
and we had no idea what kind of threat we were looking at. The suspicious jeep pulled up to the Manhattan target location. The woman sat inside. A person matching Procopio's description emerged from the building and walked toward the jeep, Kane recalled. The agents and detectives sitting in De Niro's restaurant put a positive ID that this was our guy, he said. Kane decided it would be safer to capture the suspect as soon as possible before he could get his hands on one of the boxes. When the team debated whether to attack both locations simultaneously and see what happens. Upon receiving the dispatch, all units converged on the target and the streets erupted in action. Cars began flying up one-way streets in all directions. The agents in waiter uniforms revealed raid jackets, handguns, shotguns and machine guns pulled by a dozen authorities from every angle. Kane remembered how Procopio struggled for a little while as another officer got him to the ground. He finally gave in to being cuffed. Catching my breath as I looked around, I heard clapping. There were all these tourists standing around applauding and snapping photos. It turned out that De Niro is, is a major tourist attraction and they assumed it was a scene from a movie, Kane pointed out with a laugh. They wanted to know when Robert De Niro was going to show up. I said, stick around because he's getting his makeup put on for the next scene and we bolted. This was the first and only time I received a standing ovation for just doing my job. As it turned out, Procopio was using the boxes to move locations, representative of life on the run. But as DePaul reflected, putting the cuffs on him, what stared back were tired eyes. Around us, all these people in De Niro's restaurant were applauding, he went on, but most of these guys in that world are straight-faced and have no contact. But Procopio wasn't shy. He was very nervous in the back seat of my car. I think he was just more shocked than anything else that we finally caught up to him. He was running a long time and I guess he became complacent. In his plea, Procopio did not challenge extradition. The Italian authorities quickly arrived with the doctor on hand to administer sedatives if necessary. After passing through security, he was escorted to the JF JFK airport tarmac. The threat was a very real one, but this was a case where multiple agencies here and in Italy came together and shared information something that became a crucial concept after 9-11, DePaul observed. It was an intense case, a lot of sleepless hours, but we at least got our part of the job done. But it remains an unsolved case more than 40 years after the bombing. What exactly happened and the role played by the leftist, rightist and Middle Eastern elements in destabling Rome's leadership remains a subject of ongoing speculation. It was not until earlier this year that an Italian court determined it was a state massacre and subsequently issued a life sentence to the fourth NAR member. A second twist in the tale came in last February when Italian prosecutors determined that they had gathered enough evidence to rule that Federico Umberto Di Amato, who rose through the World War II ranks, but later went on to become one of the nation's foremost food critics, funded the attack. Matteo, who died in 1996, is believed to have moonlighted as a right-wing terrorist, financier, who designed bombs that could be attributed to left-wing extremists. Exactly who planted the device inside the suitcase on that fate-filled day remains unclear. Bologna remains one of the most horrific terrorist attacks in Europe and much of the evidence has been classified. At the station, the looming clock tower, 
the only structure left after the tragedy still stands. It remains frozen in time at 10.25 local time, marking a moment when lives were lost and forever changed. Uh, also in the newsletter, you can check out my latest interview with Mike Ritland on Mike Drops podcast. For those interested in learning more about the aftermath of war, please pick up a copy of my book, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter for more updates at Holly S-M-K-A-Y. H-O-L-L-I-E-S-M-C-K-A-Y. And thank you for your support.